dude, they closed my pool again on the weekends. Oh, having a pool? What's that like? Dude, you have one. You just... Isn't yours like appointment only or whatever? But it's open. Yeah. Okay. Technically it's open, but I have to like days in advance book a two hour time slot to be allowed to go to the pool. And I don't, I don't want to swim alone. I don't know. I don't want to just go down there. First off, I burn sitting too close to the window. I will get a sunburn <laughs> and not, not even like, oh, that's a joke. That's ridiculous. No, legitimately, I've gotten multiple sunburns already this year from sitting next to the window <laughs> i.e when i drive my left arm is tanner and by tanner i mean burned um and so no i don't want to like go outside and like read a book by the pool and i i don't want to just like stand in the water alone for me swimming is a social activity and it's like oh if two or more people are like down hanging out oh drinks in the water if it's just you, no. No, I actually totally get that. Because if you're solo swimming, then you're, like, down there to do laps. If you're solo swimming, just sitting in the pool, then you're literally sitting in the pool staring at other people swimming. And you're just a creep. <laughs> yeah, I'm just sitting there <laughs> drinking, watching people in the water. That's weird. I mean, that's what you do when you're with another person, but you're not alone doing it, so it's not as weird. <laughs> yeah, you're sitting there, I don't know, shit-talking everyone else at the pool <laughs> yeah, with the other person <laughs> and your drinks, instead of just sitting there being like, y'all doing the butterfly stroke? Ew! Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, hello everyone, this is Blood and Wine, I'm Brittany. And I'm Tyler, and... I don't swim, apparently. I don't know how to do the butterfly stroke. (laughs) (laughs) God, okay, well. Anyway, I I just, I'm sad. I was spending the weekends at the pool. I know not everyone has a pool, but it was closed for so long, and then they opened it, and I was excited, and now it's closed again. Except 9 to 5, Monday through Friday. You know, like when I'm busy working and can't be at the pool. Like Dolly Parton. (laughs) Yeah, you can swim 9 to 5. What a way to make a living! (laughs) Um, Yeah, well, I mean, I could swim also, I think, our pool hours or something like that. Um, But also, I don't want to because even though it's appointment only, every, my apartment overlooks the pool, so I can, I can watch people swim without having to go down there like a creep. (laughs) And no one's social distancing. It's everyone maskless, hanging out like it's the summer, and I'm like, "Mm mm-mm. I want to get in your little Corona stew you got going on there. Ew. God, of course not. Which, to be fair, I don't have my mask on when I'm in the pool. But, like, when I go down to it... No, I mean, I feel like you would drown. (laughs) Right. I mean, it's not that kind of mask. Um, It's not like a snorkeling. (laughs) Wait, that's what I do wear, actually. (laughs) You just wear a snorkel when you're, like, going to H-E-B, going grocery shopping. Yeah, that's what I have. I don't think that's going to (laughs) help. I know, I'm just breathing the air that's above me. (laughs) everyone knows coronavirus uh, can't go higher than five foot six yeah it's it's a colder you know like element so it it sinks because you know how hot air rises it's not an element (laughs) it's it's a hydrogen yep (laughs) new conspiracy theory y'all if i see another facebook conspiracy theory that sounds like a mad lib conspiracy theory 
I'm going to scream into the void until I become the void. Um, never say never because you see those all the time and also election season. And I'm about to become the void. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> so, November is, y'all. is happening. I just I can't. I can't. <laughs> Sounds like you need to just get off of Facebook. Yeah, I'm pretty much, pretty much. Um, but anywho, um, hello everyone. Hope y'all are enjoying your day. Maybe you're listening to us at the pool and you're alone and now you're feeling self-conscious <laughs> because we just shit talked all over you. Sorry. Uh, but you know what? You're not alone because you're at the pool with us. No, you're you're alone at the pool. It's kind of weird. Also, careful. But, um, do you. You're in the pool wearing headphones. Please don't electrocute yourself. Or if we're on, uh, you know, like, speaker or something, and then everyone at the pool feels self-conscious. <laughs> hey, everyone at the pool. <laughs> Have fun in that Corona stew. Uh, no, but I hope y'all are enjoying your day. And if you want something to continue listening to, and you're like, well, shit, this is, you know, I listen to the episodes every week. I'm all caught up. How am I going to get more blood and wine? you can go over to our Patreon and check it out because we have so many murder minis. We're recording murder mini 50 after this episode. So y'all, that is 50 extra episodes for all of our Patreon supporters. So you just head over to Patreon, click that level of support that you want to do. We have a bunch of different uh, levels and you get different prizes. Is that the (laughs) word? Is prizes the word? perks. It's not a raffle. (laughs) Perks. You don't get like a basket of fruit. Sorry, we're not going to do that for you. But um, you don't want that anyway. You don't want to spend $35 at the silent auction on the basket of like apples and some oranges that you're like, oh, but the basket's cute. We'll use that. You're not going to use the basket for anything. You're never going to. That basket's going in your closet. And you're going to see it once or twice a year and be like, oh, I could do something with that. It's going to live there forever. <laughs> you're still not going to do anything. Then seven years down the line, you're going to be cleaning it out and being like, I hate to throw this away, but you're going to. You're going to throw it away. And you you don't need to spend... Anywho, that's not what Patreon is. Patreon's not a silent auction for fruit baskets. Um, you get different perks. You get to uh, be the director of your own episode. Tell us what topic you want to do, what cases you want to hear. Um, and we do that. You get different shout-outs on social media, in the episodes. And again, you get access to all of our murder mini episodes for you to listen to. And while you're at it, be sure you have subscribed to us on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on Spotify. I think you can follow us on Patreon. Nope, I meant Pandora. And you can follow us. You can totally do that too, but you already talked about that. There's a lot of different ones. Subscribe just that way you get those episodes every Tuesday. Boom. All right. Today's topic. I am glad we're finally doing this topic. And I feel like this is one that we've talked about doing ever since we started this podcast. Yes. Well, we had an episode a long time ago. I want to say it was in maybe the 30s that was wrongfully convicted that kind of hit on some of these points, but not fully. And as someone who wrote their capstone on this specifically um yeah no i think episode 116 is we should have done this a long time ago agreed um but our topic for this episode is innocent on death row and for those y'all that might not be aware there's a ton of people that are on death row that are innocent 
And like I said, did my capstone on this. But I think the number I saw in one of my sources today, it was from 2014. So it's a little bit older. But uh, 4% is the general recognized number then. There's a good probability it is much higher than that. But even still, 4%, 1 in 25 people, completely innocent, are set to die, be killed for a crime they did not do. And one of the big things about innocent on death row cases are the fact that there's not a ton of resources into them. Most of the places that are providing legal support and trying to get these people exonerated for these crimes they didn't commit, they're nonprofits or they're volunteer work. They're not working with a lot of resources. And one of the horrifying realities of it is when they lose a case or when they don't have enough time and someone gets executed, they're going to shift their resources to save people. So there are countless people who've already been executed that did not do their crime. And because of the resource and the way our system is built up, they're probably never going to be found not guilty. They're probably never going to be posthumously exonerated. Some are, you know, there definitely are cases that we hear of that, you know, people are posthumously exonerated. But for the most part, the Innocence Project and other resources, other organizations that do a lot of this work, they're so strapped that if they can save lives, that's going to be bigger to them than saving someone's reputation who's already been put to death. Yeah, and you have such a great point that a lot of the people working on these cases to get people off of death row, like the Innocence Project or the Equal Justice Initiative, or even law schools, there are a ton of times, and I have some examples in my case, where law students come together and they're working through this. So we already know that public defenders in our system are overburdened with a caseload. And so it's already difficult on their end, even when they do everything that they can. Sometimes they're just not able to dedicate the time because they've got 200 cases that month or something. I don't know if the caseloads are like that, but I think they are. I think they're like that crazy amount. Oh, I I think they're more than that sometimes. Because they have what, like 10 minutes before trial to download everything? In some cases, yeah. In some cases, less than that. They might have a couple minutes to meet with each um, client, and that's it. So... That sounds like a play deal, because what the fuck else can you do? I know. Our system's extremely broken, and the fact that 4% of the people on death row are completely innocent. Like, not only were they sentenced to death, and Tyler and I have talked about this, y'all know we don't agree with the death penalty. So, like, not only is there that, they didn't even do anything. In so many cases, they might be victims themselves or, you know, spouses, significant others, family members of the murder victim. And they're sitting there mourning the loss of their loved one while being charged with the murder. For me, one of the one of the arguments um, that I tried to make, and now that I think about it, it's kind of a stupid, silly argument, but I think from like a logic pathway kind of point of view it works but it's like okay these states that have the death penalty you know it's generally reserved for murder for killing people unlawfully well when someone's put to death 
and they're innocent, is that not an unlawful killing? So when the state of Oklahoma wrongfully executes someone, can you bring a murder charge to the state? And if a death penalty state, you know, what is what does that mean? Does that mean that the judge or the lawyer, could they be put to death? Could the governor, the representative of the state? I mean, no, because that's not how our system works, because people in power stay in power and don't suffer consequences. But I, I'm just like, you know, from a logical standpoint, like, what, what does this mean? What does this fucking look like? And also... I just think, you know, with the death penalty, it's it's horrible when people are put to life in prison yeah. for crimes they didn't do. But if someone is still alive, there's still a chance to exonerate them and give them some portion of their life back. When someone's executed, that's it. You can't the, give you them know, that the back. The best, no, the best you could do is is what a settlement for their family. That's that's not going to help the person who was killed. That's not going to help the family mourn their loved one who was put to death by the state, the state they pay their taxes to and live in and support and vote in that killed their loved one. No. Well, and another huge issue is race. There are so many innocent black men and women in jail, and there's a lot of innocent black men and women on death row. And there, it's just... It's not something that we can ignore. It needs to be pointed out that when you look at rows of death row inmates, a lot of the times there are a lot of people of color. Absolutely. And it, I mean, the prison system as a whole is racist at its core. I mean, you, you just look at how much more likely a person of color is to be arrested and go to jail and also, statistically, people of color don't do any more crime than white people, and in many cases, less, but get caught more often, and even when white people are caught, get heavier punishments than white people. So it's not just like a broken system, it's a dumpster fire that we've said, oh, but this is, this is perfect. I know. No. So that's what we're talking about in this episode. Yeah. And I, I think y'all might be able to tell this this going to be one that we get passionate about. Well, we already are. So. We are, yes. So to fuel our passion, um, let's fill our bellies with wine. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to need those calories. I'm going to burn them with rage. <laughs> uh, so, Brittany, what wine are you drinking today? I am drinking the 2017 Liberty Cabernet Sauvignon from... The Familia Nueva Vineyards in Paso Robles, California. Liberty, 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 liberty. No, it's not that. This is not sponsored by Liberty (laughs) Mutual Insurance. This? In fact, this episode is not about life insurance. It's kind of the opposite. It is absolutely the opposite. Unless you get found innocent. So... This is a wine, I have not had this wine in a very long time. And here's a little bit of a story. This is the 2017. I had a bottle and it was the 2013. And I love this bottle. It is so art deco with like this Greek type 
That's okay. Yeah, I was gonna say Grecian. Yeah, yeah. it's a, it's like a Greek woman with a grape tattoo, and she's got the grape leaves in her hair, and she's sitting just being this badass. I love this bottle. This is one of my favorite wine labels ever. So I kept that wine bottle for a really long time, but then I was like, why are you still holding on to this wine bottle? And I got rid of it. I kind of regret it, but they still have this. It's at Trader Joe's. It's only $10. And from what I remember, I really enjoyed it. So I'm looking forward to seeing how this vintage is. Nice. My really hot neighbor uh, just went back inside his apartment. Did he have a shirt on when he was outside? Yes. But yeah, how my recording, everything is set up. I I realize I'm like, oh, I just look out the window and hi, hot neighbor. Could be worse things. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> um, can I tell you about my wine though? Oh, yes. Yeah. No, I was very much distracted. But uh, Grecian woman, grape leaf tattoos. It's okay. It's okay. Does things. your neighbor look like hot Zac Efron? Nobody looks like hot Zac Efron. Except for Zac Efron. Can we just pause for a moment and talk about how sexy that man is? Did we do this last week? Because I feel like maybe I, I brought it up. Because I, I'm i sorry, he's so hot. I don't I don't, I don't know. But I, I see so many things that people write, like, he could break my heart and text me back five months later. And I text him immediately. And I'm like, that's, that's that real. That is the realest thing I mean, thing love ever. yourself, respect <laughs> yourself, but same. <laughs> okay. This wine is an elegant red hue. It's got a very powerful palette that delivers a bouquet of blackberries, autumnal leaves, and baking spices, followed by opulent flavors. Opulent, obviously, was something that was written on the bottle, not out of my mouth. Um, Opulent flavors of clove and marzipan with hints of leather. So it's a medium... Marzipan wine. Yeah, what is marzipan again? Really? I think it's basically like an almond fondant. Oh. I think it's a Jewish treat that, like, um, no, Bubby is Russian. That, like, Jewish grandmothers, like, oh, you know, little little four-year-old, like, you listened, here's a little piece of marzipan. I always think it's a cheese. I know it's not. That's, it is not a cheese. I, I know. I don't, I don't actually 100% know if it is Jewish, but I just, the only people I know that eat marzipan are my Jewish friends, so. Well, the hints of leather is what I'm really excited about. I'm just, I'm thinking you're about to drink leathery clovey fondant. Mmm. <laughs> Yum. <laughs> so it's medium bodied, and a few of the reviews said it's a little bit on the sweet side, but then a lot of the other reviews were saying that it is not a fruity cab, it's more oaky and earthy. So we'll see what happens. So nobody knows. Nobody knows. Everyone has a different opinion. It's an enigma in a bottle. <laughs> um. It goes really well with stuffed poblano peppers, roasted beet salad, or tortilla soup with, um, or Cuban sandwiches, which, oh, I love Cuban sandwiches. God, everything goes well with a Cuban sandwich. They do recommend decanting this wine 15 to 30 minutes. Um, I didn't do that. No. So I will be leaving the bottle open, like I won't be plugging it or anything because like normally if i have a bottle with like a screw top i'll i'll put the lid back on while we're recording but i'm not why well i don't know i i never do but i also am now thinking god how many times have i almost knocked over a bottle of wine that's uncapped (laughs) uh exactly so i'm going to open up this beauty 
Oh, and even the back of the label is really pretty, just with the the font. Oh, yeah, it's very Roman fresco-looking font. I don't know. Did you even cut the foil? I did it earlier. Are you just shoving it through? Oh, okay. (laughs) I was like, are you just screwing that in through the foil? Because, okay. No, I went ahead and cut the foil earlier because, I don't know, I just did. Nice. Have you ever been opening a bottle of wine, and maybe you've already had one, or just some other drinks or whatever, and you're like screwing, you know, the corkscrew in, do-do-do-do-do, and then you look down at what you're doing and realize you just corkscrewed a screw-top wine? No, I've actually never done that. Yeah, me neither. That would be crazy. <laughs> Who would do that? I just don't know how you get the corkscrew through metal without realizing it. I'm very strong. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I was taking the cork off of my corkscrew because I wanted to show you how it's literally got, it says Liberty, but then it's got like this, it's it's got these ladies who are hanging out in the grapevines. Oh, almost. It's a very detailed cork. Yeah, it's given me uh, Venus vibes. Also, do you see how high that red is up? I'm a little nervous. See? Oh, you're fine. So this wine has an interesting smell, and maybe it's just the cork, but maybe there's a reason they say that it needs to decant for a little bit. (laughs) It kind of smells a little bit like feet, like cheese rind. Yeah. But I'm also able to smell the leather and tobacco. And honestly, it's 2020, the real win. You're able to smell. Honestly, it's so real. If I was, like, not able to taste, I feel like one of the first things I would realize I can't taste is my wine. Because sometimes I eat, like, boring, bland food, like chicken and veggies, and sometimes there's not much flavor to there in those to begin with. Yeah, no, I think uh, if either of us got COVID, uh, listeners, y'all would get to see it in real time, because it'll be the episode one of us like, I'm just not really getting anything from the wine. I think it's not a good one. God, it wasn't the wine. It was COVID. I'm going to let that breathe while you tell me about your wine. What wine are you drinking? I am drinking one that the more I look at it, the more I'm like, have we done this before? And I don't think we have. Because when I was buying it, I have our like notes on my phone, like our Google Doc that has all of our wine we've had before in it. And I always make sure to search it before I buy a new wine being like, Oh, have we done this? And I didn't see it. But it the picture and the name and everything is just striking very familiar. So I don't know. But it's the Seeker Pinot Noir. And it has this, like, dirigible on the front. What is that? Like, um... Is that a word? Did you just make that up? It's, a, it's like a... Kind of like a hot air balloon, but a blimp. It's a dirigible. It's an airship. It's, it's a word. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's an old yeah, air okay. blimp. It's a dirigible. Um, listen, word of the day. <laughs> what? Uh, but that this... one, that one that like crashed and caught fire that was like really. F- the Hindenburg. Yeah, was that a dirigible or a blimp? That was neither. That was a Zeppelin. Oh, Although that's I think it would right. still count as a dirigible. I think dirigible just means like lighter than airship. So like hot air balloons, blimps, whatever. Anywho, uh, this wine, The Seeker, it is from 
And I could not tell if this is a region or if it is literally just saying it's a wine of France, but it said it was from the Vin de France region. And I'm like, that just translates to wine of France. <laughs> so I think that I think it might just be a French wine. I think so. It's obviously from somewhere, but they don't want you to know. No, it France. It's in the country. Uh, but yeah, this is a 2018 Pinot Noir, and it's been a long time since we've done a French Pinot Noir. Wow, it it has some very light font that says "discovered in France's beautiful and rugged heartland." So, uh, Clermont Ferrand. But uh, yes, this grape it is 100% Pinot Noir. Um, the bottle says it has notes of wild berries and pomegranate with gentle tannins. And it says it pairs well with pasta, pizza, barbecue, and cured meats. But that's not necessarily what the reviews said. So I'm going to go to them and defer to people who actually drink it. Although I assume <laughs> the person who wrote the back of the bottle, I hope they at least tried the wine first. No, they they actually never do. They just um, write beautiful prose and they put it on the label and they cross their fingers that it matches. You know, sometimes when you do read the back of bottles, though, it feels like that. I know. When they're like... The intangible meets with the permanent, creating an esoteric enigma. That is the seeker. And you're like, okay, but what does <laughs> you're it like, taste but what like? does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> um, so these reviews, uh, one of them said, nice and smooth, light tannins, tastes of cherry and light pepper aroma, light body, and nice length. So Pinot Noir. Sounds like yeah. a Pinot Noir. Another person that went some into some details that I was like, ooh, uh, I don't think I've ever heard of these flavors in a Pinot Noir, said it is a scent of bright acidic fruit, crisp green apple, cranberries, and orange zest, and the taste complements this and hits the palate with strong floral accents. There's a delicate finish that will wash away with a flaky whitefish, so they would not pair it with any meat. It's a day-drinking wine if you're in the mood for a red. And I'm like, okay, yes, me. And then this last review, I they get it. Um, they said, no need for long reviews. I like it. Try it. If you like it, get it. Bam. And I'm like, oh, well, okay. So we, we just have Fair. to trust it that that person <laughs> likes it? Well, they said they like it, but they said it's up to us. So uh, this is a screw top. I'm not going to put a corkscrew in it. <laughs> Does yours also smell like feet? No, no, not that, not one bit. If your feet smell like this, I assume you did a foot bath of wine, and I'm gonna yell at you for being wasteful. Wow, honestly, yeah, I see what they mean with the smells of the cranberry and the green apple. Which the, the green apple scent in a red wine is not one I'm used to at I know. all. To me, that's a white wine smell. But yeah, little orange zest. I'm a fan. Whoever wrote this second review. So far, they're knocking out of the pork, out of the pork. <laughs> no, no pigs were harmed. Uh, no, uh, they're killing it. They're doing well. Not the pig, though. Ten out of ten. <laughs> yeah, not the pig. <laughs> uh, yeah. So I'm assuming I'm gonna drink this, and it's gonna be washed away by even a delicate white fish. I'm not eating fish, though. So. I don't know. Whatever. I'm. I need to drink this. Clearly, <laughs> I just. Yeah. Yeah. You're just watching my like train of thought, 
really just derail hit a bridge it went off the bridge a little bit it's this this train is it's off the tracks but it it has treads so it's it's chug-a-lugging along but who knows where she going to not her all right you want to cheers <laughs> yeah i do <laughs> i don't know why yeah i do fuck yeah let's cheers come on bro let's cheers Sigma Alpha Lambda. Come on. All right. Cheers. Cheers. Okay. This is not fruity. Mm. Ooh, tell me. I like this wine. I'm getting that leather and spices immediately. Like, right on the tongue. And then as it, it has a longer finish. Well, I would say medium long. It has a medium long finish. And that's when I'm getting... Well, let me take it. Before I say what I was about to say, let me make sure. Wait, is marzipan actually like halva and not fondant? You're saying all these words. I don't know what you're talking about. Halva, it's tahini brick. It's it's from the Levant. It, I think marzipan might be more like halva. I don't know. It is unrelated. Listeners, help me. But it, you're not you're not drinking any... Are you tasting almonds, basically? No. I'm getting baking spices tobacco leather little bit of smoky i'm definitely getting alcohol like i can tell what is this 13.9 percent. yeah it's you can tell it's a higher alcohol because you can feel it in the back of your throat it, you know it warms mm. your throat this is one of the wines that's doing that a lot i don't normally notice that oh. like not in a bad way like it's not acidic it's just i, mm. I can tell the alcohol content is high yours is more of like a winter red like a wine you'd have in the winter when it's cold and you're like, I need a little pick-me-up. It's snowing outside and lordy loo, I just don't know what to do. You know how people talk in Well, the it says this is a medium-bodied and I disagree. I think this is more of a fuller-bodied wine. You just called the winemakers liars. This is really good. For $10, this is a fantastic value. Like I said, it's not fruit-forward at all. It's not sweet either, so I don't know where that person got sweet. And it's more leathery, tobacco, smoky than oaky. I'm not getting a lot of oak. I'm not getting that cedar that you sometimes get out of cabs. I highly recommend this one. So if you see this at your Trader Joe's, it's like 10 bucks. Buy it. Nice. Well, mine, it was also, it was like $11. And... I'm very much getting that, like, bright, zippy, acidic fruit. Weird. It's good. It's, I mean, it's very much a Pinot Noir, but it's kind of like if you were a Pinot Grigio drinker and you wanted to try red, this this would be a good stepping stone into reds because it, it has some of that bright, fruity flavors. It's not citrusy. It's more of, like bright like strawberry or like a little bit of maybe a like a bing cherry it's a little more tart um but yeah it's that tart red fruits kind of flavor um yeah i'm a fan it is a pretty delicate wine i could definitely see if you were having like meats and stuff with this it being like gone but I wouldn't say whitefish would take it away. I, I think you could have, like, a nice lemon pepper chicken, and it'd be good. The bottle says pizza, barbecue, and cured meats. No, I think those would be way too heavy. 
but I, th- I think a light white protein or something like that would be great with this. I think we picked very good wines today. Me too. And I almost picked um, a bubbly because I was like, ooh, I haven't done bubbly in a while. So I might do that next episode. But I looked at the alcohol percentages and this one was 13 and a half and that one was 11 and a half. <laughs> and I don't want a juice box. So, <laughs> Also, I do just want to note my wine no, no longer smells like feet. Just thought I would say that. Oh, that's good. That's good. But okay. We've got our wine, we've got our topic, we've got our passion, we've got our calories that we're building up from the wine to use to, you know, outlet our rage into a fiery fire. Um, So tell me, what case did you pick that is an innocent on death row? I picked Dennis Williams and the Ford Heights 4. The sources I used, deathpenaltyinfo.org. If you've never been there... They have a long list of people who have been exonerated after being sentenced to death. An article from the New York Times. An article from the Innocence Project. An article from Northwestern School of Law. An article from the National Registry of Exonerations from Michigan State University College of Law. And a Huffington Post article by David Protest, who is the president of the Chicago Innocence Project. So early in the morning on May 11th, 1978, Lawrence Leinberg and Carol Schmall, they were abducted from a Clark filling station where Lawrence worked. This was in the mostly white Chicago suburb of Homewood. The two had recently been engaged, but the next day, their bodies were found in an abandoned townhouse in the mostly black East Chicago Heights, which is now known as Fort Heights. Both victims had been shot, and Schmall had been gang-raped. Dennis Williams and his friends, Kenneth Adams and Willie Range, they were residents of the neighborhood where the couple was found, and they were seen on the street the night of the crime. A tip from a man named Charles McCraney, who lived near the murder scene, ended up leading to the arrest of four black men, Verniel Jimerson, Dennis Williams, Kenneth Adams, and Willie Range. In addition, a woman named Paula Gray, who was a mildly disabled 17-year-old, was brought in for questioning. On May 16th, after she had been held without legal counsel for two days by Cook County Sheriff's officers and prosecutors, Gray confessed to the grand jury that she held a disposable cigarette lighter burning while she watched Adams, Range, Jimerson, and Williams rape Schmall seven times. She also stated that she saw Williams shoot both victims with a thirty-eight caliber pistol. After this, these four men were dubbed the Ford Heights Four. So Williams, Adams, and Range were tried together in 1978, and they were represented by an attorney named Archie Weston. The state's chief witness in this case was Paula Gray, who claimed to have seen the four men and been at the scene of the crime that night. However, on June 19th, Paula Gray recanted her story at a preliminary hearing, and she claimed that she had been drugged and that the police walked her around the crime scene and told her what to say. So that her confession was coerced, is what she was saying. Yeah. Since Jimerson was one of the men who had only been implicated by Gray's recanted testimony... 
the charges against him were, they were just dismissed completely. However, Gray herself was then charged with murder and perjury and brought to trial jointly with the three remaining defendants, Adams, Range, and Williams. So that's not something that you see very often. Someone who is saying like, oh, I saw them. And then she takes, she recants that. And she's like, actually, that was coerced. And they're like, oh, but you were there and you knew these things. So obviously you were a part of it. So, hey, we're convicting you now. That just sounds like the definition of retaliatory. Sounds like the definition of made up. Yeah. During the trial, the state presented McCraney's testimony, which he was the guy that was like one of the eyewitnesses, and it placed Williams, Adams, and Range near the scene of the crime at the time of the crime. But there was a major timing inconsistency in his account. But Weston, who was the defense attorney, he failed to point that out to the jury. The trial was conducted before two juries, one for the three men and the other for Gray. All four of them were convicted. Gray received a 50-year sentence. Adams received a 75-year sentence. Range received a life sentence. And Williams was sent to death row. A few years later in 1985, Williams and Range won new trials. Prosecutors at the time then made a deal with Gray under which she would be released in exchange for testifying against Williams and Range at their retrial. So basically taking her initial account that she recanted and bringing that back in and being like, hey, if you say that you saw them, you know, we're going to make a deal with you. So basically saying, hey, if you recant your previous recanting, basically if you lie put and, you know, put them away, we'll get you out. Oh, but it gets worse. As a part of the deal, Gray also agreed to testify against Jimerson, who was then recharged. He was the man in the first trial that was initially charged. Then he was let off after she recanted, but when she brought it back in, he was recharged. Wow. So at the trial, a forensic scientist testified that the vaginal swab from the rape kit contained blood types A and O. The victim was type O, Jimerson and Range were type O, and Adams and Williams were type A secretors. And them being secretors just means that their blood type is found in other bodily substances, like their semen or their saliva. Their blood type can be determined from those. There are people, you're a secretor or you're a non-secretor, and it sounds really nasty, I don't like the word secretor, but that's basically what it means. Yeah, but O is the most common blood type, followed by A. I mean, it would be one thing if they were like, oh, these people are both AB neg, which I think is the rarest blood type. But, okay. Is O really that common? I thought it was just the universal. Is that why it's the universal? I th- uh, no, it's the universal because O doesn't have any of the proteins on it, so it can be used in anyone's blood. Because the way, basically, how blood typing works, if you're A, you have certain proteins on your blood. If you're B, you have different looking ones. If you're AB, you have both. If you're O, you have none. And your body is trained to recognize, like, if you're A, it's going to only want either A proteins or no proteins. So that's why if someone who's A blood type can't receive 
B, blood. But if you're O, you can give to anyone. And if you're AB positive, you can receive from anyone. Do you know what your blood type is? AB positive. I'm the universal receiver, which means I'm also the universal plasma donor. And it is the second rarest type. AB neg is the rarest. There you go. I'm B positive. I guess that means, I mean, obviously one of our parents is A, one's B. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, yeah. I guess one of them's AB and one of them's B, probably. I don't know. I, I'm not going to make up a Punnett square right now. <laughs> We're not doing You're that. You're not a geneticist? You can't, like, is that the right type of scientist that would understand? The... It, yeah. I mean, a, a geneticist would know yeah. blood typing. You're not a geneticist? Yeah. No, <laughs> I'm not. But um, I, yeah, every time I've gone to donate blood when I was allowed to, because if you're gay, you can't donate blood. But um, they'd be like, oh, well, instead of your blood, can we have your plasma? Your blood's kind of useless. You could only give it to other AB-positive people. But your plasma, we can give to everyone. And I'm like, sure. I'll sit here for an hour instead of 15 minutes. I like donating blood. Wish I could do it. I but... know. So this forensic scientist testified that Jimerson could not be excluded as a contributor to the vaginal swab and noted that 49% of the population shared blood type O with him. However, this was misleading because the portion of the population that could not be excluded was greater than that. The current figure should have been closer to 80% of the population. So literally this evidence like, yep, see, it's him, is like, it's him and 8 out of 10 people everywhere. Yeah, exactly. So this forensic scientist also testified that hairs recovered from the back seat of Dennis Williams' red Toyota were consistent and similar to Lionberg's hair. So that was Lawrence, the male victim. Yeah, we've talked about hair typing, though. And also, I don't like the word they use, similar. I know. Not even it's a match. Just be like, it's kind of like it. You know what else is kind of like Hair, hair. You know what else is anyone's hair? Is kind of like a black piece of human hair, a black piece of dog hair. So, when when he testified about this comparison, he said, "I could not see any differentiation in the characteristics. It was like I was looking at one hair." And he also testified that hairs recovered from the rear floorboard of the trunk of the car were similar to Schmall's hair. But like you were alluding to. One major thing to note, microscopic hair comparison can never prove a conclusive match. But again, Weston, who was once again their attorney, failed to challenge this evidence. Hair evidence cannot be individualized based on microscopic analysis. Basically, it is impossible to say if a strand of hair matched a particular person. So... Their attorney really dropped the ball. Yes, he did. Williams and Jimerson were convicted, and both of them were sentenced to death. Range, again, was sentenced to life. Now remember, Jimerson was the man who was convicted, then his charges were dismissed, then Greg came in, recanted her recanting, brought him back in, and now he is also on death row. Wow. Archie Weston would later admit during a hearing in a different case that he was so stressed during the trial of Williams, Adams, and Range that he couldn't think straight. 
he was disbarred for fraud committed in another case. So the guy was not a good lawyer. He was not a good attorney. Wow. Damn, disbarred. Disbarred in Chicago for fraud. Wow. That has to be some fraud. I feel like Cook County is notorious for being really corrupt. Some bullshit. Yeah. So in 1994, David Jackson, who was a jailhouse informant, also testified against the four defendants, or who also testified against the four defendants in their first trial. He also recanted his testimony in an affidavit prepared by defense investigators. He said that he lied because prosecutors gave him a deal on charges he was facing at the time. And in 1995, the Illinois Supreme Court unanimously reversed Jimerson's conviction and ordered a new trial due to witness perjury. Prosecutors had allowed Gray to lie on the stand and say that she had not received any benefit for her testimony, which was a bold-faced fucking lie because she oh was released God. from prison for her testimony. And I feel like that shit's obvious. I know. Like, what? Of course it's... She just said, no, I am not getting any benefit for this, but also, deuces, out of prison. Like, they're just expecting people to be like, what a coincidence there. That's so crazy. No. The number of areas where people just fucked up and screwed over these men in this case is astronomical. It is every step of the fucking way. Every step. And they literally have... Like, this is all being based on essentially one person's testimony that they already tried to recant because they were coerced into it. And then being more coerced to recant their recanting, recantation. Well, and they also have McCreary. Like, he's the guy that's placing them at the scene of the crime. Yeah, but I mean, he's like, yeah, I saw them in the area. They live in the fucking neighborhood. Exactly. So he may have very well saw them. Doesn't mean anything. And there were the time inconsistencies that the attorney didn't call out. And then the forensic scientist, both of his things, the blood and the hair, no. Like, those are not things that you could base this on. So, like, yeah, there's, like, nothing here. There's no real evidence. But, I mean, the thing is, it's... I feel like in way too many cases, and I mean just shit in way too many cases, it's not about the truth, it's about the theater, because it's up to the jury to decide. A lot of the times, yeah. So, I mean, all of this, all of this shit, yeah, we can sit here and be like, obviously this is fucking bullshit and made up, but if the jury believes it, jury believes it. And that's, that's what matters in getting a conviction or something. And I'm like, that's so fucked up. Like, I think jury of your peers is important in a lot of ways, obviously, but one, it should be your peers. <laughs> There's a strong part of me that thinks, hmm, how many people of color were on this jury? I feel like there should be a basic level of, like, forensic and scientific knowledge you should have to be able to make these decisions, these life and death decisions for these people based on forensic evidence. Because if you have a corrupt fucking lawyer being like, this proves it, and you don't know anything about the subject, then, yeah, that, okay, yeah, that proves it. Because, you know, this is a person who knows this. It's their job to know this, telling me. So, okay, yep, prove it. Well, and that's what really sucks, is it falls on the shoulders of the defense attorney to bring in another specialist to explain why whatever that specialist said 
is not actually the case. So then it's like expert versus expert, and who do you believe? Like, it's it's theatrics. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Oh, God. I would, I would be, I think in an ideal world, an ideal juror, I think most lawyers would not want me on the jury because they'd be like, mm, hold on, let's actually review this shit. Because, nah, uh-uh, I will, what's the the phrase, 12th man it, when they're like, I know everyone's saying this, hung jury. That's what it yep. is. I would hung jury the fuck out of that if I'm like, no, y'all, you dumbasses. I know. Or, maybe I don't is, know. Maybe this is Ugh. why they don't ever pick us for jury duty. They're like, no, those are the I ones that have probably. the podcast. <laughs> Then, in 1996, a group of journalism students at Northwestern took up the Ford Heights 4 case. Working under Professor David Protes, which he's also the president of the Chicago Innocence Project, the students found a police file showing that within one week of this crime, of this double homicide, a witness had told the sheriff's police they had arrested the wrong men. The witness said he knew who committed the crime because he heard shots, saw four men run away from the scene, and the next day saw these four men selling items that they had taken in a robbery of the victims. The police never investigated the tip, and the report had never been turned over to the defense. Wow! That is fucked up. Yeah. This is 100% that sheriff's department shoving this under the rug because they want to put these four men in jail. So the investigating team also found two of the three men that were responsible for the crime. These two men eventually confessed. The third man at this time in 96, he had already passed away. So after Jimerson, there was no credible evidence. You know, they dismissed his charges. The Cook County State's Attorney's Office agreed to DNA testing. Again, this is the 90s. DNA is a new thing. It was not as readily available, but they were like, okay, one man got off, you know, he was exonerated. So I guess let's do some DNA testing. The result of the DNA testing conclusively established the innocence of the Four Heights Four and corroborated the confessions. And Paula Gray again recanted her testimony against the defendants. Williams was released in 1996 having spent a total of over 17 years in prison and on death row. So the official misconduct, you know, that you and I have been talking about in this entire case, it was so egregious that in 1999, Cook County settled lawsuits filed by the four, excuse me, the Ford Heights Four, it's kind of hard to say, for $36 million. This was the largest civil rights payment in U.S. history. The filed suit said the sheriff's officers who investigated the 1978 killing were racists who hid evidence that would have helped the defense while ignoring leads pointing to the real killers. Yeah. Williams said at the time, no amount of money can be satisfactory for what has been done to us. If someone asked me 18 years ago, can I buy your life for $100 million or can I borrow your life for $100 million for 18 years? I would have said, hell no. Yeah. I mean, that's such a huge part of this because in some cases, people do win settlements. In a lot of cases, people don't win settlements even after they've been exonerated. But in some cases, they do. And it's like, okay, 
they've they've lost everything. Yeah. They're they've been in jail they've been in prison on death row for 20-ish years. So now they're what almost 40 with whatever job experience they had was 20 years ago and any kind of social development of growing into being an adult in your 20s and 30s all that was behind bars yeah williams was 21 years old when he was put on death row there's no amount of money that could make that okay because there's no part of this that is ever going to be able to be separate from their lives you know, in in 20 years, it's still going to be affecting them every day from the PTSD they have of being on death row, from the the lack of of um, upward mobility from being on death row and not being out and being free for a crime they didn't do. And because the, what these racist ass cops just wanted to get these black men in prison or you know what best case scenario they just were lazy and like oh we got them we can be done with yeah. it and ruined their lives the lives of their families like i don't understand how someone can have the mindset of being able to do this i'm like this to me is it's evil it's evil i mean because i think the destruction of to a person's life is Similarly to being on par with murder and stuff, you know, like, yes, they are still alive, but the semblance of life they could have is over. It's pure evil. After he was released, Williams campaigned against the death penalty and wanted to reform the criminal justice system, which he claimed was more criminal than just. And I agree. Mm -hmm. His charisma, though, made him a very popular speaker at abolitionist rallies and before legislative bodies. In the six years following Williams's exoneration, he became a leading public figure in the burgeoning innocence movement. But when he wasn't in front of the audiences, Williams was suffering. This is exactly what you were just pointing on. His inner world was dominated by fear and suspicion he was constantly haunted by flashbacks of life li- for 18 years in a six by 10 foot cell near the death chamber where he would hear his friends being executed. And he felt like their ghosts were haunting the area at all times. His travels were very limited. He was scared to fly because he was obsessed with the idea that the prosecutors would blow up the plane. He still felt like they were against him. They were out to get him because they were during both of his trials. Yeah. So Adams, who was the man had who had been convicted to 75 years and released, he was Williams's neighbor and his best friend. And he was really concerned, but he, he didn't really know what to do because Williams absolutely refused help. Dennis Williams passed away in March 2003 He was 46 years old. He only lived six years after his exoneration. A brain aneurysm is most likely the cause of his death, but Adams believed it was way more complicated than than that. And Adams said he died from a broken spirit. When he was eulogizing Williams at his funeral, 
Adams closed by saying, The system didn't murder Dennis on death row, but they managed to kill him anyway. Yeah. He suffered from, I believe I, I read he would drink a lot and just he was trying to do anything he could do to fight his demons the ptsd Mm -hmm. that he was suffering from all these years on death row death row is different than just being in prison because like you were saying earlier even if you're convicted to life there's still opportunities that you could get out that's you know and you're innocent there are ways you can get out someone could come and help if you're on death row there's a fucking clock Someone could come help. Yeah, there's... And if they can't continue to get you stays of execution, then it doesn't matter what they do. They may not have time. And that's only if someone comes to help you. Yeah. I mean, think of all the people who don't get the help. And it's one of the things I think of whenever I see people commenting, you know, when there's a, a new story about someone who did a horrible crime and you see all the people commenting that are like, this horrible, like, torturous punishment, basically, you know, there's always a part of me that says, if you are okay with that kind of punishment, you also have to accept the fact that there are going to be innocent people facing that. Because there's always going to be innocent people who are sent to prison, who are not guilty of doing it, but are found guilty. And when you advocate for this medieval type of punishment, for this torture of people, I, and I get it, some of these acts that people do, that they are guilty of, are heinous and horrible. But you have to know that if, if you're saying, like, this is what our punishment should be, that there are going to be innocent people who are put through that exact same punishment and have all that done to them who did nothing wrong. And you cannot advocate for that kind of punishment for a crime without having to support both. Because if you are against innocent people in these prisons being going through these horrible shit, I don't know. I just, it's one of the reasons why more and more I'm so for prison being rehabilitative. Even in cases where, you know, someone's done something absolutely horrible and heinous. And it's just one of the reasons. It's absolutely not the whole reason. But this is not an eye for an eye fucking society. Because you know what happens? Is there are casualties. There's people who get caught in the crossfire. Who are just as innocent as the victims whose murders are on trial. Well, and that's exactly the point I was going to make at the closing of my case. Is there are so many victims in this case. Lawrence and Carol, who were murdered. But also... Kenneth, Willie, Dennis, and Vernil. They were all innocent. Two of them ended up being put on death row. Two sentenced, one to life, one to 75 years, which is essentially life. That's Mm -hmm. six victims just right there. And that's not even bringing in the families of the murdered victims. The families of the innocent Uh, men. And Paula Gray. Yeah, she was a mentally disabled person who was clearly taken advantage of and thrown for a ringer over and over and then convicted. So this is one of the most frustrating cases I've ever read. There is a book on it and shoot, I should have written it down. I can't even tell you who it's by. I will try to find that and post it on our Instagram. But 
I want to read into this more because this is very much a high level overview of this case. Mm-hmm. Obviously, it was 20 years. There's a lot more details out there. But man, this is so messed up. Like I said, every part of this case, like there was nothing that was showing that those men should be convicted. Mm-hmm. And yet, their lawyer was crappy enough and the state was able to put on enough of a show to make the jury believe that these four men were guilty. Yeah. That's my Shit. case. Yeah. I don't really know how to close after that because I know we have one more case to go and And it's uh, more of this more Mine's yeah, a lot. Another doozy. What case did you pick for Innocent on Death Row? I picked the case of the wrongful conviction of Sabrina Butler. The sources I used, uh, Sabrina Butler's Wikipedia page, uh, an article from the National Registry of Exonerations by Maurice Posley from University, uh, Michigan State University? Michigan State, yeah. Yeah. It's UMich, so I'm like, University of Michigan? Michigan State, no. I know. Um, and then an article in Time Magazine by Sabrina Butler. Ooh, wow. She wrote for Time. And that article was heartbreaking, and I got a ton from it, because it was her perspective of going through all of it. So, on April 12th of 1989, Sabrina Butler, she's this 17-year-old black woman, and she's at home in Columbus, Mississippi, with her nine-month-old son. Shortly after midnight, she's, you know, like, getting ready for bed, getting everything done. She checks in on her son, and she noticed that he's not breathing. And she panics. I mean, she panics because her son isn't breathing. Her baby isn't breathing. She scoops him up and she frantically, she rushes to her neighbor next door, but they can't help her. They don't, they don't know what to do. Like they don't know CPR. So she runs downstairs where another girl, I think another neighbor, uh, takes her baby and starts CPR and shows Sabrina like how to do CPR and so Sabrina, they, I'm not sure if they got in an ambulance or just a car, but Sabrina, the entire way to the hospital, is performing CPR on her baby. The doctors attempted to resuscitate him for about half an hour, but they failed. And nine-month-old Walter Dean Butler died that same day. I can't even imagine any more of a nightmare. It, the nightmare has only begun. I know it has. But it started at one of the worst imaginable moments. Yeah. So there were bruises and internal injuries on Walter from Sabrina's resuscitation attempts and the resuscitation attempts by the hospital. Because for those of y'all that don't know, CPR is rough. It's not like, I feel like in a lot of TV shows and stuff where you see CPR, it's, you know, kind of pushing. No, most people that get CPR and get it for a while, you're probably going to break a rib properly doing CPR. I mean, I think that, like actual proper proper the way doctors do, you're probably not going to break a rib. But a person not trained, but doing it hard enough on an adult even, you're probably going to break someone's yeah. ribs. And you're definitely going to get bruises. I mean, anyone... Even who has CPR from like doctors and stuff, you're going to bruises all over your chest because what you're doing is you're putting your hand on someone's sternum, you know, the, the bone in the middle of your rib cage, and you're pushing it hard enough that it squeezes 
someone's heart. So you're compressing with using your hands on someone's bones to compress their organs in their chest, which the rib cage is built to not do. It takes a lot of force, and you're doing that constantly. One of the main rules of CPR is you do not stop chest compressions. Breathing for someone, um, I mean, it, it depends on the CPR. Sometimes yes, sometimes no. Like, I, I think the old rule of, like, 15 pumps and then breathe in is, like, not correct. I'm, I'm not CPR certified. I'm not 100% sure. But you do not stop chest compressions. I mean, if you see any, like, good hospital show, like hospital documentaries yeah. or something, and someone's doing CPR, usually they're, like, maybe even on the bed to get better leverage, and it's exhausting. And they will have another nurse or another doctor swap in and do it because they're exhausted. I mean, it's hard work. So especially on a nine-month-old baby, there's bruising and there's internal injuries on Walter from the CPR. Yeah, I was just looking up photos of bruising from CPR, and it's intense. These are some big, deep, mm -hmm. purple bruises. I mean, it's bruising that looks like you were in a car accident, and it's from an airbag it, or yes, something. Yes, it does. But when you think about what CPR is, it's like, yeah, yeah, there should be bruising kind of thing. The next morning, Sabrina, she's I mean, she's mourning the loss of her yeah. son. And she goes down to the police station because she'd been asked to do so. I'm not sure if it was by officers in the hospital or what, but they asked her to come to the police station. So she does. And when she gets there, she's taken to a room and immediately this detective is yelling at her. He's he's saying, you know you killed your baby. You stepped on him with your feet and smashed him to the floor. You killed him. What? She's a 17-year-old mother mourning the loss of her child. And she's alone in there. There's no lawyer present. She doesn't have her parents there. And she she's telling this detective that she tried to save her baby. And he wrote down everything she said. And when she was finished, he crumpled up and he threw it in the garbage. Literally, fuck this guy. He is a, the biggest dick ever. Yeah. Holy and pretty much no matter what she said, he screamed over her and over and over that she had killed her baby. So over the next several hours and into the morning, she gave different accounts of what happened. Um, some of them included a fictitious babysitter. There were also versions where she went jogging by herself and one where she went jogging with the baby in the stroller. Basically, they were all false stories that she was being led to tell that were being coerced. And ultimately, she signed a statement that said she had punched the baby in the abdomen when he wouldn't stop crying. And less than 24 hours after Walter died, Sabrina was charged with his murder. And she was not allowed to attend Walter's funeral. But her confession, obviously, was coerced, and it was not the truth. She tried to recant it, and she later said, I was a teenager who less than 24 hours before had lost my precious baby boy. Ambitious men questioned, demoralized, and intimidated me. In that state of mind, I signed the lies they wrote on that piece of paper. 
I signed my name in tiny letters in the margin to show some form of resistance to the power they had over me. I know a lot of people say that they cannot understand how and why someone would confess to something or sign a confession if they didn't do it. And these are the people who have never been interrogated, yeah, who have never been in the room, who have never experienced hours of being locked in a room alone, <laughs> oftentimes without proper, definitely without food, without sleep, without any of that. It's like at a certain point, after being told that you have done all of these things that you didn't do, you just want to get out of the room. You've been in this room for 48 hours. You haven't slept. You're being verbally assaulted the entire time by different officers coming in and out. And, like, they're using all their different interrogation tactics. Yeah, at a certain point, you just break down and you do whatever you can to get out of that room. You're not seeing the consequences ahead of of that moment because that's all you can see getting out of that room is all you can see well and they're they're telling you things like just sign this and you can go home you can go free you can go be with your parents i know you're scared i know you're you're miss your parents right now just sign this and you can go no that's all fucking lies to get you to sign that and you know some of the interrogation techniques they're they're building it and they're I, I, good enough that's not the right word but to to sometimes you might even doubt yourself like well i know i saw this but you know is that really what i saw is that are, are they saying the truth maybe i'm like making you doubt yourself yeah. and stuff but i mean it's it's literally it's torture it, it's it's torture a confession out of someone it is and she is a 17 year old girl a 17-year-old girl who just lost her child the day before, who spent oh hours just the night before doing CPR on her baby, probably fully well knowing this is all I can do. Yeah. And less than a day after going through that kind of trauma, she's being told these horrible things about how she killed him and she murdered him. She's the murderer. And she's a 17-year-old kid. So on March 8th of 1990, Sabrina Butler went on trial. The prosecution, they focused on her statement in which she said that she'd punched her baby. And they also noted that an autopsy showed the baby had numerous internal injuries and peritonitis, which is an internal infection that takes at least an hour to appear. So they're saying that that is showing, like, a history of abuse. I'm thinking if it takes at least an hour to appear, and we already know that at least 30 minutes of resuscitation attempts are taking place at the hospital. Yeah, I would assume she was trying to resuscitate him for a little longer than 30 minutes from finding him, getting help, and getting to the hospital, but okay. I would too. Also, there's lots of reasons for internal infections, too happen we'll go into that later sabrina's defense they consisted of cross-examination of prosecution witnesses in an attempt to establish that the physical state of walter's body was indeed the result of like clumsy attempts of her to perform cpr but it was just cross-examination the defense called no witnesses and sabrina who was not even called to testify in her own defense. So on March 14th of 1990, 
less than a week after the start of the trial, Sabrina was convicted of both murder and child abuse. And even though she was just a teenager, she became the only woman on Mississippi's death row in 1990 and was condemned to die by lethal injection. She is 17 years old. Yeah. Who tried to save her son's life. Yeah. She was just trying to save her son. While she was on death row, she was alone in her cell for 23 hours a day. But she said that that was a good thing for her. She said that if the other women could have gotten near me, they would have killed me because they thought I deserved to die. Because not only was she in prison for murder, she was uh, in prison for murdering a child. And th- there, there are certain things that other prisoners will assault or murder or gang rape you for and, you know, Attacking a child, hurting a child is That's one definitely of them. one of them. You hear about people being murdered in prison, and a lot of the times it's because they were put in prison for harm to a child. I'm just filling the whole bottle. I'm just I mean it looks like you did pour the whole bottle basically into that glass. I did. I just don't know how you do that. Man, that is just you filled up that wine glass with your red wine like it was Coke. I don't understand the confusion of it. What is the difference between having a glass that's an inch from the top and three inches from the top? I've explained this to you. The reason you fill... Yeah, it breathes better. It gets better flavors and all. It still tastes good. It tastes fine. And I don't have to go through the excruciating effort of picking up the bottle and pouring multiple times. There you go. This is a conversation that should not be here now. Like, yeah. True. Yeah, but I I need I need the wine for this case. I get it. So Sabrina's mom, she fought to prove her daughter's innocence and championed her daughter's innocence and did everything she could. And in Sabrina's own words, she was pretty lucky because attorneys Rob McDuff and Clive Stanford Smith, they took her case pro bono. After her conviction, Sabrina filed an appeal with the Supreme Court of Mississippi on several bases, and the courts reversed and remanded her convictions on August 26th of 1992. The Supreme Court of Mississippi said that the prosecution had failed to prove that the incident was anything more than an accident, and they also ruled that the trial prosecutor, Lowndes County District Attorney Forrest Allgood, had improperly commented on Sabrina's decision not to testify at the trial, which I'm assuming means that he did a lot of speculation and maybe told the jury, like, see, she's not testifying in her own defense because she knows she's guilty and knows that she murdered her child or something like that. Yeah, that's exactly what that sounds like. Yeah, I couldn't find the trial transcript to know exactly, but that, to me, that's what likely... From the Supreme Court being like, dude, no, we're ruling that you fucking did that. And no, mistrial, bitch. So Sabrina's lawyers got her a new trial, and this time her defense did call witnesses. And these witnesses were her neighbors that she'd run to for help when she first discovered Walter wasn't breathing. And they said that she'd been trying to resuscitate Walter with CPR, and that's where the bruises come from. 
I think some of the witnesses may have also been uh, like doctors and nurses at the hospital. How, how were these people not brought in as witnesses in her initial trial? Because she had a shitty defense. And I mean, not to, I don't, I don't know a ton about her defense lawyer if he was uh, just a shitty lawyer or if he was so under resourced that he does not have the time to find who these witnesses are to be able to contact them, to be able to get them to come. Because again, if he was a public defender right. and it's in an overtaxed system, if he has like 10 minutes or whatever to prepare his case, 10 minutes is not enough to make more than what one phone call. And that's one phone call is not going to be enough to find out, okay, who were these people? Or it's, it's, you're going to use that time to prep Sabrina as best you can. And to try to explain, you know, what you're going to do for her defense. So, yeah. I, yeah. Or he could have been a shitty attorney. I don't know. Yeah. But another thing her new attorneys also showed is that her son died from a hereditary kidney condition. And that's where the infection came from. Oh, my gosh. Wait. Was there not even ever an autopsy done on his body? Or, like, was there, but that never came into the trial, maybe? The first one? Well, I'm I'm about to get into that. There, okay, there was, okay. but basically, her attorneys are showing that there was no murder at all. Walter was not murdered. A medical expert testified that the injuries, again, the bruising and internal injuries on him, could very well have been caused by the efforts to save him from the CPR, the resuscitation efforts, and the defense. They also got the testimony from the physician who performed the autopsy. And his work was less than thorough. Basically, he saw the bruises, saw the internal injuries, and was like, oh, yeah, he's been abused. Did he even know about the CPR being performed? Uh, I'm I'm sure if it's obvious. Well, like... it's I, I feel like CPR bruising is pretty distinct. Yes, yes. But it's like, he clearly didn't even look at the documentation that was given to him because it would have been on there you know mm -hmm. and in addition to all this the medical examiner um which i don't know if the medical examiner is the same physician who performed the autopsy i don't think so but i don't know so maybe but the medical examiner changed his opinion about walter's cause of death and said that he now believed it was indeed due to a kidney malady so, basically, literally, the defense is like, there's nothing showing murder. Nothing showing child abuse. All that is showing is that a 17-year-old mother found her child not breathing and tried to save his life. And so, also, um, side note, I forgot to mention earlier, but, of course, the jury that convicted her earlier was mostly white. Who's, who here is surprised? Raise your hand if you're shocked by a person of color being tried in a murder case and an almost all-white jury or an all-white jury. No surprises here. Yeah, because we all know an all-white or mostly white jury is so representative of fucking Mississippi. No, it's not. I don't understand why there's not just some kind of basic, county-level, proportionate diversity requirements for a jury to be considered a jury of your peers. If you live in a county that is 80% Hispanic, your jury should probably be 
about 80% Hispanic. Like, that's a jury of your peers. If you live in a mostly black county, your jury should be mostly black. I know. I've never looked at... the. the you bring up an interesting point because I've never looked at the requirements for a jury. Because when I think about it, you think about both the prosecutor and the defense attorney talking to the the people trying to find they're like okay this is what our case is about and we're pushing for these types of people to be on the jury and you know the other team is pushing for another type of people to be on the jury and as much as you would like to think that would mean it's 50 50 it's not like it just no there's too many politics around how to pick the jury and you pick the jury based on what decision you want there to be at the end, not based on yeah. a jury of your peers. Yeah, well, and the way juries are selected is it is illegal. It is against the law to uh, reject a juror on the basis of race. However, lawyers, like it is well known and well taught by many law firms that if it's a death penalty case with a black defendant, you want to try to get as many black people off the jury as possible. Well, you can't kick them off for being black. But if you're challenged, because the opposing attorney, the defense attorney during jury selection can be like, whoa, I challenge this. I think he's just being racist. If the attorney who is being racist and just does not want a black person on the jury can come up with any reason that is not racially motivated then they're good to go. So they could be like, oh, this juror, they're a similar age to the defendant, so I thought that could be bias. Or, um, I I thought the way the defendant dressed was unprofessional and didn't like it. Like, literally any fucking reason. Yeah. And then there are also, I think they have a certain number of no contest, like, rejections they can have in criminal trials. But basically... No, jury selection is absolutely fucking racist, and it's just really hard, the system and laws that are in place, for anyone to actually challenge it and have a legal basis to be like, yo, this lawyer's obviously being prejudiced, being racist against these juror members. And it's like, no, yeah, it's very well known, but it's really hard to prove, like, in a in a trial sense kind of thing. Yeah. Super fucked up. That it is. So, the jury in this new trial deliberated pretty briefly before they wound up acquitting and exonerating Sabrina Butler on December 17th of 1995. So, when Sabrina was acquitted of murder, again, she'd spent more than five years in prison and 33 months on death row. She was the first woman ever in the United States to be exonerated from death row. There have now been two. Yeah, the very first woman. There's now been two. The other is Deborah Mike or Mikey from uh, Arizona. I don't know her case. Sabrina had a book published in 2012 that she titled Exonerated, the Sabrina Butler Story. And she's also a storyteller in a collection of stories that are titled Pruno, Raman, and A Side of Hope, Stories of Surviving Wrongful Conviction. And today, or at least in 2014 when the source was from, uh, Sabrina Butler is the Assistant Director of Membership and Training at Witness to Innocence. 
She still lives in Columbus, Mississippi with her husband of, source said 19, now it would be 25 years, and her three children. And she's an advocate for criminal justice reform. In her own words, she said, I wish I could say that it is rare for innocent people to be convicted and sentenced to death, but it's not. Since 1973, 144 people have been exonerated and freed from death row in the U.S. I provide support to many of these men through my job at Witness to Innocence, a nonprofit organization that helps people who've been exonerated from death row and their loved ones. A study published by the National Academy of Sciences found that more than 4%, one in every 25 of the death sentences in the U.S., are imposed on people who are innocent. This should be cause for outrage. If one in 25 bank transactions were inaccurate, no one would stand for it. You can change the laws, but you can't change some things about human nature. There will always be people who want to advance their careers by putting people to death. Some of those people will be innocent, like me, and most of them will be poor, isolated, and African-American or Latino. Wow. That comparison to a bank transaction is so accurate because no one would stand for that. And people would be beyond outraged. But why aren't more people beyond outraged? At killing people, killing innocent people, or just killing people in general. Yeah, it's like, okay, one in 25, if you get paid bi-weekly, if you knew that at least once a year, one of your paychecks wouldn't go into your account, you would not stand for that shit. You'd be like, something needs to be fucking done about this, I'm switching banks, or I'm doing something about this. That's a paycheck. This is people's lives. This is innocent people on fucking death row who are going to be executed for stuff they didn't do and again like she said the majority of them are poor isolated and african-american or latino it's people of color who are already victimized by society and they're just again being punished by the racist discriminatory arm of the quote-unquote justice system yeah But that is my case. That is the case, the wrongful conviction of Sabrina Butler. Cases like this always put me at a loss for words. Yeah. Because I feel feel like I just want to scream it from the rooftops. And I try to. And yet, people are ignoring me anyway. That's not going to keep me from screaming. Ever. But it's just so frustrating. Make me scream fucking louder. Yes. It's just Mm -hmm. so frustrating, and there are a lot of things going on right now in our world, as we know. We've talked about this, about how racist our country is, and how important the fight is, and how important it is to be allies and advocates. But I think one thing that we all have to recognize is there is a distinct possibility that we are not going to see these changes in our lifetime, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't fight for them. These are things that are Mm -hmm. always, always worth fighting for. Equality is something that we are promised in this country, and it is not something that a lot of the country is receiving. And we should all be outraged. Absolutely. We should not stand for this. Like, this is something that we should fucking shut down the world for, because it's shutting down the world for so many innocent people. 
And no, we're not, I, we cannot stand for this and just idly go by living our lives like as if this doesn't happen ignoring it because it doesn't directly affect you or i on the daily because you know what it is affecting people every day those that are on death row their families their loved ones are being affected and being reminded of this every single day and you know what people that are victims and being victimized should not be the only voice for themselves. No, they absolutely shouldn't. And to be totally honest, I will never understand why in 2020 the death sentence has not been abolished in this country. When it came back, I was infuriated. Something like that coming back Mm -hmm. makes no sense to me. I can never understand any type of just argument for killing someone for their actions no while those actions a lot of the murderers and serial killers we talk about are beyond heinous so taking this out of the innocent and into the people who did do things how does that make it okay Mm -hmm. to kill them how does that not make you just as bad as they are yeah it's not there is no justified reason for the death penalty And the only reason people ever really give comes from a side of retribution. And you you, you can't argue that when you're trying to argue policy and facts, because feelings aren't facts. Feelings don't dictate policy. Except that they do. And that's what is so messed up. Except that they do. And that, yeah, like, that is such an important point, because we talked about how trials are a show. And that is so emotionally based and it's not fact-based. And there are a lot of things that need to be fixed in our system. And we could go on and on and on about them. But let's all just take a stand and educate ourselves. Learn what these inconsistencies are. Learn what things should be and how the law should be run. So you can recognize these things when they're happening. Because if you don't educate yourself... It is unfortunately way too easy to just take a step back and ignore things that don't affect you. That does not make them okay. And just because something doesn't affect yeah. you doesn't mean you shouldn't fight for it being done correctly. Absolutely. Um, I think with that, this has been an intense episode, as we knew it would be. Mm-hmm. As promised. Yes. And... If you enjoyed this episode, if you want to hear more about some of these cases that nobody talks about, let us know. These Mm -hmm. are things we're extremely passionate about. I know we talk about cases you have heard of, but we also want to highlight the ones you haven't because they're just as important. Mm -hmm. If you like this episode, hop on over to Apple Podcasts, rate and review us. Let us know what you thought. We love reading your reviews and we thank you so much for all of your support. Also, make sure to like and follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Check us out there. Follow us for all the pictures of us, our wine, and all our little updates and stuff. Do it. And with that, this is Blood and Wine signing off. XOXO. Bye, you guys. Bye!